You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Our Father, we do thank you that you speak in your Word and you speak to us. And we pray that you would speak into our hearts now and that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word to draw each one of us nearer to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I think it's been fascinating over the last few weeks to see our country adjusting to a whole lot more laws and rules than we're used to and far more than we would usually accept. Rules like stay at home, don't go on holiday, don't have your friends over. These are really extreme laws. And amazingly, most people have embraced them. Uh, Most people have accepted. In fact, some people were worried early on that they weren't tight enough and they weren't brought in early enough. How come? How come we have accepted these drastic laws? Well, quite simply, it's because we recognise that in our situation, these are good laws, good for us and good for our neighbour. If you love life, if you value life, these are good laws. And in Deuteronomy chapters 5 and 6, you find something very similar. We find laws there. In fact, we find what we call the Ten Commandments. And Moses is preaching. And Deuteronomy is really a sermon. It's a magnificent sermon. And here he's preaching about those laws. And his perspective on the Ten Commandments, on the law of God, is the same as ours on the coronavirus laws. He says these laws are good. They're good for us, they're good for our neighbour. If you value life, these are good laws. And like the coronavirus laws, they're part of a package. Um, you know, stay at home is part of a package that goes along with, with massive economic stimulus and huge healthcare resources. Now, in a similar kind of way, the Ten Commandments are part of a package. And there are three things in the package that we're going to have a look at today. The three things are these, covenant, law, and love. And that was a key package for the Old Testament people of God, for Israel. But it's also the key package for us, for God's New Testament people, for Christians Today, in fact, it's really a gospel package. So let's unpack it and let's look at each part. First of all, then, covenant. Notice in verse 2 that it says that the Lord our God made a covenant with us. Now, covenant is a word that's used about 300 times in the Bible hugely common idea, and it's used to describe the kind of relationship that God has with his people. So, 
What kind of relationship does God have with his people? What is a covenant relationship? Well, I think the best example of that today is marriage. About 34 years ago, I fell madly in love with a girl. Uh, We were both at university. I met this girl. I, I was head over heels in love. We went out. We got to know each other. We dated. And then about 18 months later, we decided that we wanted to make that relationship lifelong, permanent, binding, legal. We entered into a marriage covenant with each other. It, it wasn't just a contract. It's not just an agreement where you say, well, look, I'll do this, and in return, you give me that. That's the kind of contract we have with an employer. I work for 38 hours, and you pay me X amount. But marriage is different. We made promises to each other. I pledged to love her. Now, I've never said that to an employer. I pledged to be faithful to her and to her only for life. I've never said that to an employer. We entered into a formal, legal, binding relationship and it was an exclusive relationship of love and faithfulness. Now that is what God has established with us. God's covenant relationship with his people is a legal binding relationship and it's an exclusive relationship of love and faithfulness. And so it says there in verse 2 that the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. Notice then when this is. At Mount Sinai, that's after he had delivered his people from Egypt, after he'd brought them out from slavery. He, and long before, he'd made an earlier covenant with their forefather Abraham. There had been a long-term relationship, and he had saved them and rescued them. And now he enters into this long, binding relationship of love and faithfulness with them. He, if you like, he married his people. But there's something odd there uh, in, in verses 2 and 3. It, it says, the Lord, and, and his covenant name in the Old Testament in, in Hebrew is Yahweh. It says, Yahweh made a covenant with us. With, with us. <laughs> Not, it says in verse 3, not with our fathers, but with us, all of us who are here today. Now, now that's odd, because in fact, he didn't. God made the covenant with their fathers a generation earlier, 40 years earlier. And that generation had died out in the wilderness during their wilderness wanderings. So it seems like Moses is just a, a little bit muddled. At this point, uh, I mean, he is 120 years old. Uh, he's an old man. Maybe he's just, you know, lost his edge a little bit here. Well, of course, not, a, not at all. This is not Moses having a senior moment. It's actually an awesome reality. What God is saying is I didn't just make 
a covenant relationship with that first generation. He calls every generation of his people into a covenant relationship with himself. And that is still true for us today. Those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been saved by God. He's come and he's rescued us, not from slavery in Egypt. He's rescued us from bondage to sin, from our enslavement to sinfulness and ungodliness. He saved us. He rescued us through the powerful work of Jesus Christ. And now he brings us into a covenant relationship with himself. He wants us to have an intimate, long-term binding relationship with himself. He wants an exclusive relationship with us of love and faithfulness. <laughs> you may have seen or some of you may have experienced newlyweds on the day of their wedding absolutely beam. Um, many of them and maybe maybe some of you if you've been married uh, have, have had your face almost ache at the end of the day. You've been smiling so much. People are just blown away by how good it is to marry the person you love, to have someone pledge to you that they will love you and you alone for life. It's a very beautiful thing. But here is something even more beautiful. Here is the God of the universe. Here is our creator. Here is the redeemer coming to us and binding himself to us, pledging to be faithfulness, faithful to us, promising that he'll be our God and making us his people in this formal, binding, long-term, exclusive relationship of love and faithfulness. It's a beautiful thing that the God who rescues us saves us not only out of our sin, but saves us into a relationship with himself. If you ever get uh, caught in a, in a rip at the beach, maybe you get rescued. There's a lifesaver who comes and saves your life. But then that lifesaver goes home and you go home and you probably never see each other again. But it's not like that with God. He's saved us. He's rescued us so that we might now have this covenant relationship with him. Well, that's a great truth, but with that great truth, there's a great problem. How can we ever be faithful to God? What does it even mean to be faithful to God as his covenant partners? I know a little bit about what it means to be faithful to my wife, but what does it mean to be faithful to God? Well, that leads us to the next part of the package that we're looking at. The first part was covenant. The second part of the package is law. How can we ever be faithful to God? Well, God will teach us. He'll instruct us. And that's actually what one of the main Old Testament words for law means. The Old Testament word for law is Torah. And it really means instruction, guidance. When the Lord gives his law to his people, he's giving instruction to them as to how to live. So we come to the Ten Commandments. One of the most 
common misunderstandings of Christianity is that if you keep the Ten Commandments, if you're a good, decent, moral, upright person, then God will accept you and you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven. That is the complete opposite of what Deuteronomy chapter 5 teaches. The Ten Commandments are not the way to be saved. They're the way to live once you are saved. They're not the way to be married. They're the way to have a happy marriage. Look at the order here. In verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, I've made a covenant with you. And then in verse 6, just leading into the first commandment, he says, I'm the Lord your God, I'm Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He, He says, I rescued you. I've made a covenant with you. I've rescued you now. Here here are the Ten Commandments. And actually, the the Ten Commandments, they're not even called that in the the Bible. They're called the Ten Words. They're not so much ten strict rules as more like ten core values. Ten core values that actually... Give a, start to give a whole world view, a, a whole way of understanding what it is to live in God's world for him in relationship with him. I'm not going to go through all 10 now. That would take us a bit too long. But I just want to highlight uh, a few of these commandments and look at the values that they embody. The first commandment is there in verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. So we value exclusive relationship with God because he alone has saved us from our bondage to sin. Or look at the fourth commandment, which is uh, in verse 12. It's the commandment about the Sabbath day. We value the rhythm of weekly worship because God, God wants us not only to work for him, but to rest in him and to rejoice in what he's done for us. Or if you look at the sixth commandment, which is in verse 17, it says, do not murder. We value the sanctity of life because life itself is a gift from God. Or the eighth commandment in verse 19, do not steal. We value the right of personal ownership because God has graciously and kindly given us all that we have to steward it for him. You see, the Ten Commandments open up an entire worldview that they're a whole take on life, life lived with God, a take on time and possessions and relationships and heart attitudes. It's a way of living shaped by who God is and what he's done for us. And actually the rest of Deuteronomy and indeed the rest of the Bible opens that up more and more fully. The Bible unpacks how we live in response to the God who saved us and drawn us into a covenant relationship with himself. So these are good laws. We can delight in God's wisdom, God's guidance. 
in God's instruction for our lives. But again, there's a profound problem. How on earth can we keep his will from the heart? How will we avoid legalism, where we just see these as a step of rules, a set of rules that we've got to keep in order to be saved? Or how will we avoid ritualism, where we, on the surface, keep these commands, but our hearts are actually far from God? Or how will we avoid just straight disobedience and our inclination to break these commands? Well, that leads us to the third part of this package. There's covenant, there's law, and then the third thing is love. At the start of chapter 6, there are some of the verses that are the most important verses to Jews in the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day recite verses 4 and 5 twice every day as part of their daily prayers. Have a look at what it says there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's a great statement. But what does it actually mean? Well, the the first phrase there, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. That, That can be translated in various ways. And in the context, it's probably best to translate it slightly differently so that it's actually an oath of allegiance, a declaration of our allegiance to God. It would sound like this. Our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. Our God is the Lord, the Lord alone. It's a declaration of commitment to God as our one and only. Now, if there's someone in your life who is your one and only, what, what do you do? You love them. You love your one and only. And that's why it follows this by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And to love God with all your heart and soul and might is basically shorthand for saying, love God with, with all that is within you. Love him with your inner being. Love him with your whole of your life. Love him with all your resources and possessions and your strength. Love him totally. And the verses that follow kind of flesh that out and begin to give us a picture of what it looks like to love the Lord our God with, with all our heart. It, it means thinking about the Lord when you're out walking. It means having the Lord on your mind when you're at the beach, if you're allowed to go to the beach again one day. It, it means thinking about God and having God in your worldview when you're at work or when you're chilling at home, or when you're in bed. It means talking to your kids about the Lord. It it says there that the law is to be like smack 
bang in between your eyes. It's to be written on the back of your hands. It's to be on your gates. And when it says, write it on the doorframe of your gates, it's, it's not thinking of your personal gate at home, and you know, in the middle of a picket fence. But this is more like the gates of a city. In the Old Testament, the gates of a town or a city were the place of politics and business. God is to be at the centre of our lives, our private and our public lives. So here actually is the answer to the question, how can we ever obey God's law from the heart? Well, the answer is love him. If you love the Lord your God, you'll want to keep his commandments. You'll want to live his values. If, if you really love someone, you want to please them, don't you? If you have a great boss at work, it brings the best out of you. You want to do good work because the boss is so good. If you have a wonderful teacher, you actually want to turn in good work to them. And if you have a wonderful boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, we hate upsetting them. We want to please those we love. But that, of course, only raises another problem. How can we ever love God this much? Notice that every part of this package has a problem. Covenant relationship with God is great. But how can we ever be faithful to him? Well, he'll instruct us. The law, his guidance is wonderful. But how can we ever keep his law from the heart? Well, the answer is love him. But how can we ever love God as we ought? And those problems actually set the trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament. God keeps loving his people. He's faithful to them. But they are constantly unfaithful to him. They keep breaking his commands and turning away from him and worshipping other gods. They are, they are an adulterous people. Actually, through the story of the Old Testament, the covenant, law, love package became a disaster. It was like the curve never flattened. The economic stimulus didn't work. The healthcare system was overwhelmed. But God was not surprised by that. God was not caught off guard. He knew that that would be the case. That old covenant was actually designed to powerfully demonstrate to them their need of something else. God's plan was to eventually establish a new covenant. And we read of that new covenant in many places in the Bible, but particularly clearly in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to read a few verses there if you want to turn them up quickly. I'm in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 to 34. There's a tremendous statement here. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbour or his brother saying, Know the Lord, or they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. This was the Lord's brilliant solution. He would make a new covenant, an unbreakable covenant with them. He would bring them into a rock-solid marriage. He would now make them and enable them to be faithful to himself. He'd write his law on their heart so it was internalised and his values would be their heart desire. He'd give them a new heart, one that loved the Lord and was faithful to him. How could he do that? How could he establish this new covenant with his people? Well, friends, that is, of course, the glorious work of Jesus Christ. You might, might remember the words of Jesus when he was at the Last Supper. We remember them in, in the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant was established through the death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus in his life and his death did for us what we could never do ourselves. He was the faithful covenant partner, faithful to the Lord God. He was faithful in our place, on our behalf. But he also took the punishment for our spiritual adultery. He was truly obedient to the Father, keeping his law fully on our behalf. But he also bore the price for our wrongdoing. He loved his Father. He loved God fully in our place for us. But he was put to death for our rebellion against God. And when we have faith in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit unites us to him so that his life becomes ours and his death is in our place. And that radically changes our relationship with God. Think of it this way. I use a little uh, analogy, and I actually stole this from one of my students because I thought it was very useful. Imagine, now you have to be a little bit imaginative here. Imagine that you are a little grapevine that's been planted in a garden. But it's, it's not a very good garden. The, the soil is rocky and hard and hasn't been fertilised. There's very little sunlight and it's dry. And so... You, you don't do very well 
but behind you there's actually a wooden trellis and you're meant to be climbing up this wooden trellis. But because your growth is stunted, you, you can't grow up that trellis. In fact, you hate that trellis because it's a reminder of everything that you're meant to be and are not. But after a while, a gardener comes along and he sees your plight and he, he uproots you and he replants you in a different garden. And the soil is lush and fertile and there's bright sunlight and, and good water and rain. And you begin to grow and, and little tentacles are put out and eventually they latch on to that wooden trellis that the gardener has put behind you again. And you start to climb up it, and that trellis supports your growth. Friends, that is what happens when God works in our lives and in our hearts. The law, the trellis which once condemned us and frustrated us, now supports our growth. We've been replanted, reborn, regenerated by the gracious and powerful work of God through Jesus Christ. And what now happens is the whole package becomes wonderful to us. Covenant means that we can be secure in our relationship with God, knowing that he will be faithful to us and he will keep us faithful to himself. Law means that God guides us by his word and writes his word on our hearts so that increasingly it's our desire to please him and follow him. And love means that we can rest knowing that God loves us and that he's poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Friends, I think this is the best package in the world. It's far better than a job keeper payment. It's, it's not economic stimulus. This is spiritual stimulus. And if you have already received this package, it's right to thank God afresh today for the secure relationship we have with him, for the blessing of being guided by his word, and for the privilege of having his love worked in our hearts. Thank and praise God for that. And if you have not yet received this package, if you're not yet a Christian or a follower of Jesus, then you don't go to Centrelink for this. You go to Jesus Christ and you ask him to work in your heart, to replant you, to give you a relationship with God, to write his law on your heart and to grow within you real love for God. Well, can I lead you then briefly in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing package. We thank you that you want covenant relationship with us, your people. We thank you that your law and your word guide us in life. And we thank you for the love of Jesus and that you have poured your love into our hearts. We pray that 
you would work this spiritual stimulus in our hearts and in our lives that our relationship with you might grow. And if there's anyone amongst us today who doesn't yet know how good it is to have relationship with you, we pray that by your word and spirit, you would work in their hearts today and draw them into a new relationship with yourself. We thank you that this is possible because of your love and your grace to us in Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.